Good morning, Sanctuary. I want to talk to us this morning about something that's not particularly exciting. It's certainly not a very sexy topic, but it's one that marks us for a life of faithfulness. And that topic today is patience. I don't know that any of us do patience particularly well, which is really just a byproduct of the world that we live in. We are people who are overwhelmed with choices and options, and so we're rarely confronted with the need for us to be patient. Whatever doesn't please us, we can immediately walk away from that thing and go to something that is pleasing. Again, I don't think that we do this because we're bad people or because we're selfish. I think we're often well-meaning when we don't exercise patience. Here's what I mean by that. In James 5, it says, don't grumble against each other. So there are times when we move on from situations or from people or from places that cause us to grumble, or we recognize the grumbling in other people. And we think that by avoiding that grumble, we're actually living faithfully. We do this with lots of things, right? We do this with churches, with television, with restaurants, or at least when we could go to restaurants. If we disagree with the preaching or we don't like what's on the channel, if we get a waiter or a waitress who's in a bad mood, we just go to the next church, to the next channel, to the next restaurant. But I want to suggest that any form of the Christian life that doesn't teach us patience, how to sit with those things that aren't agreeable to us and how to wait on the good, it really isn't a form of the Christian life at all. It's a counterfeit. Now, I want to be careful here to say that there are absolutely times when we have to move on, whether it's a toxic relationship or some abusive dynamic within our communities. But our tendency is to abandon situations for the sake of avoiding the grumble rather than working through that grumble toward the good. What we're promised in the Apostle Paul's words is that we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, if you're anything like me, you have heard this verse misquoted more times than you've heard it rightly quoted. I was raised hearing this verse as God causes all things to work together for good. And it was often implied that this meant first, that God causes all things, and second, that it was worked out for my personal individual benefit. But that's not really the claim that Paul is making here. First, God does not cause all things. You know, when this pandemic started to really touch our lives back in March, there was a lot of dialogue on, is this God's judgment? And it had an echo of the disciples' question to Jesus in John 9 when they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? A better picture of what Paul is saying is not that God causes all things, but that God is gathering up to himself all things that have happened and are happening, and God is working and reworking those things to be for our good and the good of our neighbor. The reason this requires patience is because we may never live long enough to see the ways that God is working these things out. I'll give you an example. 
our Old Testament text today is the story of how Jacob, who you remember famously tricked his father and his brother out of his inheritance, had to work for seven years in order to marry Rachel, this girl he was after. And after those seven years, Jacob is tricked into marrying Rachel's sister, Leah. So there's a little bit of karma or cosmic justice at play here, but now he's joined to Leah all the same. This is not how things were supposed to play out. So Jacob complains to Rachel and Leah's father, Laban, and he agrees to let him also marry Rachel in exchange for more work. Now, Rachel was the one that Jacob was after all along. Rachel was the plan. Leah was the problem. She was the trick, that thing that wasn't supposed to happen. But I want to suggest that if you stick with this story long enough, like hundreds of years long enough, what we find is that Leah gives birth to a son named Judah, who has a son named Perez, who has a son named Hezron, and on and on and on until we come to Jesus. Jesus himself is a descendant not of the life that Jacob wanted for himself, not of the life that he imagined for himself, but the life that he was handed. Jesus isn't the descendant of Jacob and Rachel, but Jacob and Leah. So rather than grumbling over the inconveniences and the ways in which life doesn't seem to be working out the way we had planned, maybe what we should remember is that we haven't yet stuck with this story long enough Maybe we should be sniffing out these hidden places where God might be up to something that we haven't thought of yet. My wife and I, we're trying to discern right now whether or not we're going to sell our house and move into a different house. You know, we have another baby on the way, our third baby, and as much as we love our little house in Broken Arrow, we just need more room for all of these people. But our oldest daughter is not down with this idea. The idea of leaving this house that's been a home to us for the last three, almost four years, is kind of devastating to her. She only sees the loss of a place, the loss of a thing that she's known, a place that uh, has been her home for the last several years. And she doesn't yet have the imagination for the good that could possibly be worked by leaving something behind by leaving a place that has become precious to her. She can't see the possibility of more space, of better space, of her own room, of having a garage. It's still a hidden good for her because she hasn't yet seen it all worked out. Our gospel text today gives us these images and ideas about the kingdom, the way that the kingdom is bound up with what is deep, hidden, buried, out of sight, and uncaught. Jesus tells the parable of someone finding a treasure buried in a field, and they go and sell everything they have in order to purchase the whole field, the entire field. Now, imagine the time and the patience and the work that it would take to make this all possible. You don't quickly sell everything that you have. You don't quickly negotiate the purchase of a field. It takes patience, but you know that in that field is a treasure that's worth all the trouble. 
for all of us. The treasure is the gospel. The treasure is this story that we have heard that brought freedom and healing and liberation, identity and meaning to our lives. But if the gospel is the treasure, we still have to deal with the field. We still have to reconcile the rest of the story with the ways that the church has been imperfect, the humanity embedded within the story of God's people. Jesus goes on to announce that, again, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, like yeast worked into flour, like a pearl of great value, a net that's cast into the sea. John Chrysostom related this parable of the yeast to loving our enemies, saying that when we come close to our enemies, we're actually made one with them, that we actually get the better of them because the yeast of the gospel gets through the whole lump. He says, quote, The leaven, though it is buried, is not destroyed. Little by little it transmutes the whole lump into its own condition. This happens with the gospel. Do not fear then that there will be many dangerous circumstances, for even then you will shine forth and be victorious. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of slow ferment. It's not one of pop spirituality or feel-good philosophies. It's not about what is quick and plain and manageable or within reach. The kingdom exists in the hidden parts of life. It takes a certain level of endurance and a great deal of patience. The good news for us is that endurance and patience doesn't have to mean separation from God. Enduring hardship and waiting for the kingdom to be fully realized doesn't happen in the absence of God, but right along with the work that God is doing in the world. The Apostle Paul names this point explicitly in Romans 8. He says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, all things he was experiencing in his day? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, even death itself. So those unrealized dreams, those Missed expectations and those unrealized hopes, God continues to work those things for our good and the good of the world. Somehow these hidden parts of our lives can actually nudge the world toward the kingdom. You know, yeast, when it's worked in and buried and hidden in the dough, it has to be heated, it has to be killed in the oven. But the yeast is what creates those pockets of air, those spaces that raise and lift the bread and give it its texture and its deliciousness. The Spirit of God in our lives is often like that. It's buried and hidden in our lives. And in the moments when we are suffering and under fire, the Spirit expands to take up space in our lives, to raise us up and to lift us into the people that God imagined us to be. 
Mary Ann Evans, a Victorian poet and novelist who most of you will know better by her pen name, George Eliot, wrote this. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. We don't yet know the debts that we owe to the faithful saints that have gone before us. We won't even know their names, let alone the things that they did for us or the ways that they suffered in order to make our faith possible. But it's all part of our story. It's all part of how God continues to gather all things to himself, to work together for our good and the good of the world. You know, many of us have felt the weight of the catastrophe that has been this year of our Lord, 2020. Listen to these words from Jerome, a saint from the fifth century. He says, when Job lost all his wealth, when he lost his sons, everything seemed to militate against him. But since he loved the Lord, the evils that befell him worked together for his good. The vermin of his body were preparing for him the crown of heaven. Before the time he is tempted, God has never spoken to him. After he is tempted, however, God comes to him and speaks familiarly with him as a friend with his friend. Let calamity strike, let every kind of disaster fall, as long as after the catastrophe, Christ comes. Friends, we can patiently endure whatever trial or temptation we're going through, so long as after the catastrophe, Christ comes. And our hope, where we put our trust and our faith, is that Christ always comes into all of our messiness and all of our brokenness and all of our darkness. Christ comes to clean and to mend and to bring light into our lives. So fear not. Have patience. Christ will come. Amen.